This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. In today's session, we'll be focusing on lifestyle management and its relevance to the management of diabetes. We'll begin by discussing what both the ESC and EASD ADA guidelines recommend in terms of lifestyle for people with diabetes, before moving on to an expert interview. Joining us this week is Naveed Sattar, Professor of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences at the University of Glasgow. As always, please do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview if you're already familiar with this topic. For further reading, you can also find the links in the episode notes to all the publications and guidelines we mentioned in today's episode. Joint ADA-EASD guidelines advocate lifestyle interventions as the foundation of diabetes management for all patients, both to address diabetic symptoms and to reduce the risk of cardiovascular complications. In 2018, Galaviz et al. conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of 63 studies and showed just one kilogram of weight loss reduced the odds of developing type 2 diabetes by 43% in people at risk for the condition. Equally, the Look Ahead trial showed that an average 8.6% weight loss was associated with a significant reduction in HbA1c and cardiovascular risk factors. Finally, the initial 12-month results of the direct trial have shown that weight management has led to almost half of the participants achieving remission to a non-diabetic state without glucose-lowering medication. It's therefore little surprise that both the ADA and DASD advocate for discussions of lifestyle management at each visit. But what exactly does lifestyle management entail? In essence, this falls under two main domains, dietary changes and behavioural modifications. In terms of diet, ESC guidelines recommend a reduced calorie intake to reduce excess body weight in people with type 2 diabetes. Although evidence on specific approaches to achieve weight loss is varied, Hamdi et al.'s five-year longitudinal study showed that sustained weight loss is associated with sustained improvements in HbA1c and lipid levels even after five years. Alongside reducing energy intake, guidelines recommend reducing saturated fat intake and increasing intake in polyunsaturated fat. However, as Dr. Bernach pointed out during ESC 2019, people don't eat saturated fat or poofers or these other terms that we use. People eat food. As such, guidelines recommend adopting a Mediterranean-style diet. In particular, substituting animal products, which are high in saturated fats, with those that are rich in polyunsaturated fats, such as olive oil, fish, and or nuts, where appropriate. The PREDIMED study showed that the Mediterranean-style diet reduced the incidence of major cardiovascular events, while a meta-analysis by Huo et al. in 2015 showed it reduced HbA1c. However, the ESC, ADA, and EASD guidelines all agree that there is no single diet that is optimal for every person with diabetes. Diet should be based on an individual's current eating patterns, aiming to identify healthy dietary habits that are feasible and sustainable. In terms of macronutrients, the ESC guidelines explain that the role of low-carbohydrate diets in people with diabetes remains unclear. In fact, Snorgard et al.'s meta-analysis found that when comparing people with high and low-carbohydrate diets, their levels of glucose control were similar after a year, and there was no significant effect on weight or cholesterol levels. The ideal amount of dietary fat for individuals with diabetes is also controversial. 
However, as previously mentioned, substituting saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat may help to prevent poor cardiovascular outcomes. As with any healthy diet, vegetables, legumes, fruits and whole grains are recommended for those with diabetes and no additional vitamin supplements should be necessary. In terms of behavioural modifications, the largest modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular outcomes is smoking status. Smoking cessation support should be offered to all individuals who report habitual use. Secondly, an increase in physical activity can benefit both body weight and glycemic control. Studies by both Sweek and Hanzi back in 2012 demonstrated that aerobic and resistance training delay the progression of prediabetes and improve insulin action, glycemic control, lipid levels and blood pressure among people with type 2 diabetes. ESC guidelines recommend at least 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a week to prevent and control diabetes. The ADA EASD position statement supports an increase in exercise, stating that supervised exercise can improve the positive effects over advice alone. Similarly, the combination of dietary interventions and exercise together synergistically improve glycemic control and cardiovascular risk factors more than either strategy alone. Both the ESC and ADA EASD guidelines recognise that there are still gaps in evidence surrounding lifestyle management of people with diabetes and that more research into how to adapt treatment on an individual basis is needed. However, based on the current evidence, they recommend reduced calorie intake, physical activity and smoking cessation as fundamental aspects of diabetes care. But how can we motivate our patients to make and adhere to these lifestyle changes? Joining us today is Naveed Sattar, Professor of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences at the University of Glasgow, for his tips on how to help people with diabetes implement effective lifestyle change. Thanks for joining us, Professor Sadar. So, a new diagnosis of diabetes can come as a shock. Alongside everything else that must be discussed during the first appointment, how do you approach the topic of lifestyle amendments against this backdrop? Is it a case of suggesting small, manageable changes gradually, or more using this as an opportunity for large-scale lifestyle changes? Um, Yeah, so if a patient comes with a new diagnosis of diabetes, um, as you say, many people will feel shocked. And lifestyle, I think we've underplayed its importance, partly because in the past, um, the saying was we pretended to offer patients a diet and they pretended to, to follow it, and that was a reality. Having said that, the evidence base has now improved substantially so that we now know that most people are happy to discuss their weight. Number one, there's evidence base for that. Uh, Number two, we know that uh, certain uh, methods do help people lose weight uh, by modest amounts or by significant amounts. I think going forwards, we need to clear that evidence into a menu of options. So for some patients, um, they they may not prefer large scale changes or they may not be able to undertake large scale changes, but what they may be able to do is undertake some small sustainable changes, for example, cutting out sugary drinks and uh, moving to either water or diet drinks, or for example, cutting the amount of alcohol uh, and again, replacing that with um, non-alcoholic beverages. Or as another example, um, cutting down the the amount of confectionery uh, they eat and replacing some of it with a bit more fruit and vegetables. And it's those kind of small changes that we need to help people um, to think about and give them the confidence that if they do try to make some of these changes, that with a little bit of retraining their palate, so some of these changes might take a bit of time, that they can get to a position where they enjoy their new food 
or their, which is healthier in composition than their old one and do so sustainably. And that's a key point. So for some people, it's small, sustainable changes and a series of them. For others, they may want to try and lose considerable weight to no longer have diabetes. And of course, um, a recent big trial called the DIRECT trial has shown that by replacing um, your your calories in the form of uh, liquid meals or shakes or soups and having a total diet replacement for a few weeks or up to about three months to five months, you can actually lose considerable weight. And many people, the diabetes goes away. And then it's a process of reintroducing a better diet once they come off those shakes. And that, for some people, might be an option. So we really have a range of options now for people, and it depends what they want and what they think they can achieve. But I certainly think um, what we need to do as a, as a medical profession is collate all of that into a simple one or two page option, menu of options that people can do. And we need to educate our colleagues on how to give our patients confidence to try these things and not to worry about failure. People just need to be the confident, you know, we're not going to give them a hard time that they can just try and then just go for it. And how about someone who has had established diabetes for a while, but does not seem to be taking lifestyle management seriously? How do you motivate them and encourage adherence? I think that's a, a more difficult thing. So if someone's had diabetes for a number of years, they're usually on a number of medications. They may have some other comorbidities that makes it potentially more difficult. But having said all of that, I think it is possible to help people. I think what has been happening in the past, certainly about 10 to 20 years ago, is that we didn't have the evidence base of how to help people. Now, some people um, with a few, again, back to the small changes concept, if we can explain to people in a way that they get it, that um, that it's not condescending, but it's helpful, that that they can make some small changes to, you know, uh, as another example might be, for example, to uh, if they want to eat bread is to only have high fiber bread or a high fiber cereal, that these changes take a little bit of time, but that they can embed them and enjoy them as much as they enjoy their current foods. I think that's important. There is also the option that if people are motivated, we need now, we now know that actually just a diet sheet isn't going to help. What really helps is, for example, referral to a commercial Weight Watcher, which some NHS um, centres are, are now funding so that the patients are offered to go to a commercial Weight Watchers to help kickstart their lifestyle and dietary changes. And we know from trial evidence that that does really quite well for some people as well. So, um, again, it's back to a range of options and also how we communicate that evidence to individuals. I think the final thing I would say is, Lifestyle changes, particularly dietary changes and activity, can make a huge difference to quality of life in the sense that not only are you helping people perhaps to improve um, their weight, which would be a great benefit, and thus their glucose control, but that may also lead them to sleep better because they're eating better foods, they're having better bowel habits, um, and it may also reduce their risk of other diseases like cancers and other uh, chronic diseases because of the quality of the food that they are taking has improved. Again, the key concept for people when they walk out of the room for some is not to make whole scale changes rapidly because many people can't sustain that. What we need to do, I think, going forward, small, gradual, sustainable changes for the majority is probably the way to go. And also to give them the confidence that with a little bit of time and perseverance that they can start to enjoy better quality foods uh, in a way that they would never have imagined in the past such as salads, fruits, veg, 
that allows them to have a better quality meal and thus have all the other health improvements as a result. So it's a win-win. I think that's the way we need to go. Marvellous. That's all great advice. Finally, are there any specific tools you'd recommend to help people with diabetes monitor their diet, exercise, or, as you mentioned, sleep? Yes, there are tools for all of these things. Um, I think the simplest tool uh, in terms of, let's start with activity. Um, Again, it's back to simple goals. In the past, we used to, the, the mantra was 30 minutes, five times a week of exercise. I think that's gone. For most people, even increasing whatever they're doing by 10 minutes of walking a day is a benefit if they can sustain that. Um, I find that for personally, I find the little step counter on your phone helps to monitor how many steps you do during the day. And if if many people have mobile phones, they can all put on the health app to monitor the steps. And if people can monitor how many steps they do during the day and they can potentially, if they find that the levels are pretty low, so well under, you know, 5,000, two to three or 4,000, for example, a day, which is not that much they should aim to increase it initially by a thousand steps. And that is effectively an extra 10 minutes of walking or, or, or similar activity during the day. And I think most people can achieve that. And once they've gained that confidence, they can try for another thousand steps. So it's again, small, gradual, sustainable. Um, and the way to do that is by you know improving their uh, activity levels during the commute or during the day. In terms of diet, there are no specific apps. Well, there are many apps, but actually people are not really engaged in those apps. I think the key thing people need to get used to is understanding what the calories they are putting in their mouths, the calorie contents of certain food sandwiches, and they can become used to the total calorie content, the amount of saturated fat, the amount of fiber. It's to, it's to give them the confidence to look at these things. But again, I think we need a whole scale educational process doing that. But it's not difficult. And I think we can achieve it as a medical profession to help our patients. Um and, and the other thing, of course, people can monitor is weight. You know, if, they're, if they want to lose weight, set scales which are accurate will always help. Um, and finally, for sleep, um, there are uh, apps available for sleep. I think we're only starting to learn about these, but improving sleep certainly imp- improves appetite, has the potential to improve um, other aspects of lifestyle, mental health, for example. And I think um, there's a whole research agenda needed to uh, around sleep um, to try and improve people's quality of sleep, which is linked to better diet, which is linked to better activity. So the whole things go together. But I think moving forward as a profession, we need to capture our patients' imaginations, get them to understand that there's a range of options they, they can undertake and maybe just to try a few in a way that is sustainable um, and, not, and to encourage to keep trying and not to worry about failure. Um, and we need to be um, uh, empathic, um, uh, empathetic, sorry, but with our patients and, um, as I say, encourage people to try uh, in a very supportive manner. And I think we can do that. So I, I'm optimistic that we can massively improve our ability to help people improve their lifestyles. Um, and, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing how we do that in guidelines over the next sort of 10 years. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, lifestyle management should be the part of the ongoing discussion with individuals with type 2 diabetes at each visit. An individual dietary plan should be created for each individual, aiming to minimise foods of demonstrated harm and accommodating patient preference and metabolic needs, with the goal of identifying healthy dietary habits that are feasible and sustainable. Where possible, supervised exercise should also be undertaken, smoking should be stopped, and alcohol intake should be reduced. If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps, 
and also stream individual episodes from our website. If you found the episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at DKI Practice. And you can also access all our free and accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thank you for joining. Join us again in another two weeks for a discussion of pharmacological therapies and how to address multifactorial targets through strategic pharmacological selection. We look forward to podcasting with you again soon.